As a mid-level associate, I was working late on a brief. The partner stopped by to say goodnight on her way out. She started singing a tune. She really loved Broadway musicals, one I'd never heard before. I must have had a puzzled expression on my face because she asked, what, you've never heard this before? I shook my head. She shook hers and then said, God, you're so Korean. That's just one of the stories I could share about being a Korean-American lawyer at a large law firm. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. First of all, I want to apologize for missing you all last week. As some of you may know, I caught the COVID. And as a result of that, I did get pretty sick and made the executive decision to take a couple days off. And what that meant was no newsletter or podcast last week. But thank goodness, I am feeling so much better. Thank you to everyone who reached out to say, feel better, hope you recover soon. I am on the mend and ready to tackle this week's podcast episode. What are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about a decision that many people have asked me about. Why did you become a lawyer? Like the story behind why I became vegan, there isn't really one single thing that drove me to choose law as my first career. So I thought it would be kind of fun to tackle that story today. And sort of in line with that topic, in lieu of doing an Ask Joanne this week, we're going to chat with Arden Cho, the star of the new Netflix hit, Partner Track, a show about a Korean-American woman and a large law firm in New York City. So let's get into it. A few weeks into quarantine, the judge on my biggest case at the time ordered a video conference with only the attorneys in preparation for an upcoming evidentiary hearing. I signed in a few minutes early. The judge's seat was still vacant. His clerk, however, was at her desk and online. Before I had a chance to introduce myself to her, though, she said, Ma'am, this conference is for attorneys only, not witnesses. As she was finishing up her admonition, the other attorneys came online. All of them were men, all of whom heard the judge's clerk dress me down for attending an attorneys-only conference. I am an attorney. I answered with a practiced smile. Later that morning, the clerk sent me an email apologizing for the gaffe. It wasn't the first time I'd been mistaken for a non-lawyer, but it was the first time since I'd made partner. I like to think that the exceedingly poor resolution of my webcam took several years off my face, but it did make me wonder once more whether she'd have made the same mistake with a man. She obviously did not subject any of the men who joined the conference to the same warning. Even if the answer to that question were yes, the damage was already done. Not only had she required me to affirmatively assert my right to be in that space, like literally, she did so in front of my peers and opposing counsel. In many ways, my career as a woman of color in big law can be summed up by repeating the following phrase over and over and over. I deserve to be here. I am not one of those persons who went into law because I'd always dreamt of being a lawyer. Quite the opposite. I always swore to my parents that I would never be a lawyer, out of spite. My mom often taunted me with, you should be a lawyer, whenever I talked back, which was pretty much all the time, to which I would reply, never. But here we are. I've been a practicing lawyer for over 18 years now. As with going vegan, there isn't one single thing that caused me to pursue a career in law. Most immediately, though, it was the anxiety of being an adult. I graduated college a year early with no job and only the vaguest notion of a plan. I was still living with my parents, but the future pressed down on me, made me feel small and helpless. And so I did what everyone else was doing at the time. I picked up a copy of the local paper, i.e. the Chicago Tribune, and scoured the classifieds for the word writer. I had a degree in English. Within a few months, I landed a job as a resume writer. 
I wrote CVs for executives and other professionals who had been laid off or divested from large companies. In some ways, this was a great job to have right out of college. It forced me to scrutinize hundreds of career paths in corporate America. One morning, I flipped open the folder sitting atop the large stack of manila files weighing on my desk. Inside was a one-page resume for a lawyer in trust and estates. Not my typical assignment, and maybe that's why it stuck out to me. I'd never had to craft a CV for a lawyer before. She listed her salary as $45,000 a year, and I remember thinking to myself, not bad. Based upon the home at class I took in high school, $45,000 would be enough to pay rent, buy a car, insurance, and still have some left over for annual vacations to California. I know, times have changed quite a lot. I googled how to become a lawyer, and upon learning of the incredibly structured journey towards gainful employment, quickly decided that a career in law was for me. Like medicine, you went to school for a few years and usually had a job before you even graduated. But unlike medicine, there was no blood involved. I faint at the sight of blood. The lockstep rhythm of a career in big law was in stark contrast to the forest of decision trees an MBA candidate would be forced to trek through. In short, there were just too many things a person could do with an MBA or not do, I guess. Whereas with a JD, a Juris Doctor, you have far fewer choices. And at that time in my life, when I was staring down what felt like the Goliath of life choices, the fewer options I had, the safer I felt. So I signed up for the LSAT, took a weekend prep course, applied to only two law schools, and got into both. I felt like a million bucks, even though I could barely afford the application process. Resume writers don't make a lot of money. I was finally taking one solid step towards adulthood, one that my parents could be proud of, and thus, one I could be proud of. On the first day of law school orientation, Dean Levmore spread his arms out as if trying to embrace our entire 178-person class in a bear hug, saying, getting here, he pointed to the lectern, was the hard part. Maybe because it was so much easier to believe him, I relaxed in my seat, sat back and watched the long straight line of Easy Street unfurl in front of me towards the chalkboard where someone had scrawled the words, welcome law students. It turned out that getting there was the easy part. I learned pretty quickly that being a woman meant I'd have to say, I am the lawyer, more often than I expected. As a first-year associate, I remember covering a motion hearing in Lake County up in Waukegan, Illinois. Suburban courthouses are often much nicer and more updated than their urban counterparts. Cook County really lives up to its name as circus court. But because they are farther away and clients are less likely to pay for the time it takes to get to them, I was never very familiar with their layouts. I managed to get through security without a hitch, but once I retrieved my briefcase off the conveyor belt, I discovered that this beautiful glass ceiling facility did not organize their courtrooms in a logical manner. Not wanting to be late for my hearing, I made a beeline for the friendly looking information hub at the center of what appeared to be a large atrium. Excuse me, I said quietly to the woman sitting at the desk. Do you know where I can find Judge Nolan's courtroom? Where's your attorney, honey? She asked. Taken aback, I answered, oh, I, I am the attorney. I could feel my entire face turning red as if somehow it was my fault that this woman assumed I wasn't an attorney. A few weeks later, when I could make my way to Judge Nolan's courtroom with my eyes closed, I presented a motion for summary judgment against an opposing counsel who never bothered to answer my request to admit. If you're a lawyer, you know how dangerous that is. The judge entered a briefing schedule and adjourned. As I was walking out through the double doors, opposing counsel gestured toward the back end of the corridor. I followed him, not entirely surprised. I'd just filed a motion that would sink his entire case, but I was already prepared to tell him to pound sand, even if I had to do so after the courtesy of hearing him out. What I didn't expect was his reaction when I told him, no, I'm not going to withdraw my motion. He was much taller than me, by at least one foot. I remember his shadow trying to swallow my entire body as he crossed over to me so that we were standing only inches apart. He placed his hand on my shoulder, bent over to peer directly into my face, and quite literally simpered. What's wrong? Because of course there had to be something wrong with me for filing a motion that was a direct consequence of his dereliction. I stepped back about a foot. 
pulled his hand off my shoulder with just my thumb and index finger as if I were picking off a snotty handkerchief and let it drop somewhere in the now considerably larger space between us. What's wrong is that you didn't file responses to my request to admit within 30 days, I answered, sniffing rather indecorously as I took yet another large step backwards. The slimy-looking grin disappeared, replaced by a grim, pinched-up line. He stepped towards me again, but not to ingratiate, to intimidate. His voice, slick and sweet not seconds before, was now cold and sneering. You'll never win your motion. Judges up here don't grant motions like that. However late you are with your responses, good luck, he practically shouted, before turning on his heel and heading back into the courtroom. He was right. The judge didn't grant my motion. I really didn't expect him to. He did, however, make him pay my fees in connection with arguing the motion, saying that opposing counsel had wasted my time. I was still a first-year associate when I learned that being an Asian attorney was also going to be a thing. I was sitting in a partner's office who thought it was totally cool to ask me, why do you people, i.e. Korean people, do that, while talking about his fascination with Asian women? A few years later, as a mid-level associate, I was working late on a brief. The partner stopped by to say goodnight on her way out. She started singing a tune. She really loved Broadway musicals, one I'd never heard before. I must have had a puzzled expression on my face because she asked, what, you've never heard this before? I shook my head. She shook hers and then said, God, you're so Korean. I laughed because that is the deferential and politically expedient thing to do when your boss and all partners are our bosses when we are associates makes a joke even at your expense. But inside, it was like someone had punched me in the stomach and all the air in my lungs rushed out in a sort of wheeze that I hoped passed for something that sounded like polite laughter. There wasn't really a word back then for these types of things. These little incidents are today, I guess, referred to as microaggressions, something that everyone now gets training on as part of diversity and inclusion initiatives. But at the time, it was just another reminder that however much I tried to play the part, However hard I worked to earn my spot, I would never really be one of them. It wasn't malicious. My colleagues, for the most part, they loved me, and I loved them, even the one who told me I was too Korean. They didn't intentionally try to make me feel like I didn't belong, which is probably why I often just rolled my eyes, ducked my head, and did the work. But all those little paper cuts over time can turn into big wounds if they continue to go unaddressed. And after years and years of thinking, it's just not a big deal. You will be totally unprepared for what happens when micro morphs into macro. Someone once asked me how to find your passion. I gave them the only answer I knew. Figure out what makes you madder than anything in the world. The opposite of that is your passion. I hate injustice. And to me, racism is about the most unjust thing that exists. At the risk of psychoanalyzing myself in public, I will confess that my passion for racial justice is in part selfish. The world is full of evil. John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Jack the Ripper. But these are serial killers, anomalies in human evolution, a species that requires compassion and empathy in order to survive. While they are scary, their scare quotient is vague, kind of like being afraid of ghosts or monsters. But the fact that racism, one of the great sins of humanity, is practiced by not just a handful of defective human beings, but by large swaths of the global population, it terrifies me. It demonstrates a profound imbalance in the world, and as a result, I feel like I'm walking on a tightrope with no safety net all the time. The prevalence of racism means that at any moment, someone can strike me, knock me off my balance, and hurt me in a way that will reveal that however many rules and laws and morals and ethics gird our humanity, we are at bottom vessels of chaos and destruction. I hate racism. For the same reason I hate driving in the snow, it makes me anxious. It threatens to unravel me every second of every day, and therefore, I don't know how not to fight it every second of every day. Thus, when I saw two white men lynching a young black jogger in Georgia, everything inside my head became still. 
A few months later, when I witnessed a white police officer squeezing the life out of a black man on the streets of Minneapolis, the world grew muffled, as if someone had wrapped a towel around my ears. On the outside, everything was obnoxiously loud, rage decanted and splashed across the streets because some pains have no purpose other than to be expressed. But inside my head, it was so quiet, too quiet. It wasn't just the fact that these things were still happening. It was that they were done openly, on camera. Indisputable evidence that too many people believe that the color of your skin could determine how much you deserve to live. As I've talked about before, I went on autopilot at work. I could sense, though, a latent anxiety. It was like someone had plucked the fattest string of a bass guitar right inside my stomach, and I was doing everything I could to keep my body from vibrating with it. I cut out all caffeine, billed from my dining table from sunup to sundown, moved my cases forward through a new legal landscape with Zoom backgrounds and cross-examinations defended through my iPhone while shot in house slippers. When I had time, I took photos of the protests around my neighborhood read essays on police violence, examined the problem of racism as if trying to untie a knot with my bare hands. In some ways, the fact that the world outside had exploded in rage was soothing to me. Somewhere, people were feeling what I couldn't afford to as I continued to inch my way forward on the tightrope. A few weeks after being told to leave an attorneys-only conference, my partner and I scheduled a settlement call with the same opposing counsel. I've had my fair share of contentious cases, and this one landed fairly close to red-hot on the toxicity scale. Lead counsel on the other side seemed to derive great pleasure at skirting the lines of professionalism, often injecting, quote, arguments aimed at us personally instead of just sticking to the law. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this type. He also had, in my opinion, a nasty and discourteous habit of failing to provide us with notice and withheld crucial information until the last minute, i.e. like while we were in court, all designed to make us look like idiots in front of the judge while giving us almost no time to effectively respond. Thus, I had little hope that we would resolve our differences on the settlement conference, but agree to give it a good college try. My partner and I hopped onto the call with lead counsel for the other side and his colleague three men, and me. After we exchanged a few obligatory niceties, we got down to brass tacks. I stayed quiet most of the time, answering a few questions here and there, letting my partner do most of the talking. But as I predicted, we were going nowhere fast, and at one point, opposing counsel asked with unvarnished derision seeping through the phone line, why do you have to fight everything? By this time, I'd had it up to here with the amount of bullshit posturing and simply decided to tell him exactly what was on my mind. Perhaps if you had the courtesy to give us a little notice before filing things, but I didn't get a chance to finish what I was saying because he bowled right over me shouting, oh, that's fucking bullshit, Linda, and you know that is. Now, I've been sworn at many, many times and many, many opposing counsel have shouted at me. But something about the way he called me Linda, the name of one of our co-counsel, a totally different woman from a totally different law firm who had a really pronounced Southern accent and sounded nothing like me and was never even introduced as being on the call, it snapped that guitar string inside of me with an ugly twang. I was not going to be made invisible again. I interrupted him right back and yelled straight into my phone, this is Joanne Molinaro, and I'm not done talking yet. As soon as I got off the phone, my husband, who overheard my side of the conversation from the kitchen, commented, Wow, babe, very sexy. But I didn't feel sexy or fierce or empowered. I felt completely depleted while still shaking with rage. I stared at the phone still in my hands, and all I could think was, how are we still fighting over something so stupid when black people are dying for being black? 
Hearing this self-important asshole call me Linda, all the tiny little attempts at invisibilizing me were just reminders of a much larger, much more horrible machine that was literally erasing people before our eyes on television because they had the wrong color skin. And for the first time in my entire career, the idea of walking into work where the overwhelming majority of faces would look totally different from mine was unbearable. All those years of having to smile politely, laugh at slightly racist jokes, tolerate having my credentials questioned when my peers were automatically admitted, they came at me like an avalanche. So, I fell off the tightrope and crashed. Ten months later, I was still working from that exact same dining table. I took a quick breath from work emails to scroll through my news feed. Atlanta shooting. Eight killed at Asian spas in Georgia. Suspect arrested. Six of the eight victims were Asian women. Yang A.U. Sun Chung Park. Sun Cha Kim. I stopped reading. I stopped reading. These names, they sounded way too much like my mother's. Once more, a weird stillness settled over me, and I went back to work. That night in bed, I caught up on the day's events, rereading the names of all the victims. I stared at the picture of the young man who murdered all these people, feeling nothing other than an empty sort of curiosity. How does a sex addiction translate into murdering a bunch of Asian women. It soon became evident that to this man, unsanctioned sexual attraction equaled sexual attraction specifically to Asian women, and therefore he had to erase the source of his unsuitable fixation, something that was only made possible because of the repeated dehumanization that occurs when a human feature, like a woman's ethnicity, is fetishized. I processed all of this like data on a spreadsheet. I hooked my phone up to a charger and set it on my nightstand. I shut my eyes. I should feel something. Why don't I feel anything? This isn't good. The following day, I logged back into work, sitting at the same spot at my dining table as I had through virtually all of quarantine. I kept a tab open to keep an eye on additional coverage on the shootings. In the afternoon, I tuned into the press conference held by the city of Atlanta. Captain J. Baker, a spokesperson for the sheriff's office, stepped to the podium. A paunchy man with deep-set eyes and a pate so bereft of hair that you could see the glare from the studio lights reflecting off of it. With one hand resting on a sheet of paper and the other waving around in front of him, an officer dressed in full uniform, the sheriff's star still twinkling from his right breast, looked straight at the camera as he described the murderer of women whose names still rolled around in my mouth with far too much familiarity. He was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope. Yesterday was a really bad day for him and this is what he did. Yesterday was a really bad day for him. And just like that, the string snapped. I was not going to sit there and let another white man throw an invisibility cloak over Asian women. I was not going to allow anyone to throw that same cloak over my rage. I was going to reveal my pain and fear and anger and put my name, Joanne Lee Molinaro, all over it, forcing the likes of one Captain J. Baker to see me, to feel for one second as powerless as those women felt as they were slaughtered by a deranged man who saw Asian women as expendable, as impotent as he tried to make me feel by rendering our repeated dehumanization and ultimate brutalization as merely the exclamation point of a white man's bad day. A couple weeks later, I drafted a memo for the entire firm. I told everyone what it was like being an invisible woman among them, forced to hide my Koreanness, lest another partner tell me I was just too Korean. I told them that my heart was broken by the Atlanta shootings, and that there were days when the idea of showing up to work was suffocating. 
I told them all these things after 17 years of saying nothing at all because I was afraid of causing trouble. And then I signed my name to it, Joanne Lee Molinaro. I said earlier that there are a lot of reasons I became a lawyer. I don't think it was as accidental as it may seem. While there was definitely a process of elimination that went into my career choice, it wasn't just my anxiety that drove me to pick a job that offered structure and financial security. Even as my mom yelled at me for talking back, there was a small, hard kernel in me that was proud of the fact that I talked back, likely planted there by none other than my very opinionated, very ferocious mother. Something clicked in a really satisfying way when I finally concluded that I would go to law school, almost as if I'd finally latched on to the path that had always been meant for me. I say this now, even as I obviously shifted away from my legal practice to a very different kind of career. But I learned so much about effective storytelling as a trial lawyer, about leveraging my strengths instead of copying others to get what I need for my clients. When I started sharing stories on The Korean Vegan, I wanted to make sure that my family's stories, i.e. the immigrant story, was seen. I did this specifically because I knew firsthand what it felt like to be invisible, To have to show up day in and day out to a place where yours was the only Asian face. Yours was the only Asian name. And because of that, you were sometimes told you're so Korean. I also knew that bullying people into agreeing with you was almost never effective. Rather, you had to open their hearts with a compelling story. One that humanized those that would otherwise be too easy to keep dehumanized. And finally... I learned that keeping myself invisible so as not to rock the boat, to avoid blowback from my employer, to make sure I stayed on that tightrope without ever tipping over, it was overrated. So around this time, I would usually answer a question submitted by one of the newsletter subscribers or a podcast listener called Ask Joanne. But in lieu of doing that this week, I thought it might be fun to share a clip of my interview with Arden Cho, the star of the hit new Netflix series, Partner Track. I think it's totally official to say that now. It was ranked at number five just a day ago. Arden Cho plays a Korean-American female lawyer at a large law firm on her way towards making partner, hence the name partner track. I had a chance to sit down and talk with her as well as make some kimchi fried rice together with her a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, we talked about the show partner track, but we also talked about what it's like being a woman of color in the acting industry and playing a woman of color in the legal industry, something that I could obviously relate to. So without further ado, here's a little clip of my chat with the incomparable Arden Cho. Hello, hi, I'm Arden Cho. Yay! (laughs) So Arden is the star of the new hit Netflix show called Partner Track, which I'm really excited about. In case you don't know, it's about a lawyer, and Arden plays a lawyer on the show. I do, and Joanne is a real lawyer. I know, but Arden almost became a real lawyer, too. (laughs) Except they didn't make it to law school. Well, that's because you're, you know, like this big-time Hollywood star now. That's why. (laughs) Still telling my parents. We'll Ah. we'll, we'll try. Okay, well, we'll get to that, because I don't even (laughs) talk about that. Um, So, really cool fact, Arden and I went to the same college. We went to the University of Illinois. And we just found out we have Mutuals. We have like friends. multiple mutuals. Yeah. Pretty wild. But also, I mean, we're both Asian. Yeah. We're from the, the Midwest, Midwest. Chicago. <laughs> I feel like we have to know at least. At least 10 No, people. we probably know like at least 20 people we're actually. Probably yeah, we're, we're probably cousins at some point. Yeah. <laughs> if, we, we, if we actually like wrote down our Chinese character names, probably. we'd be able to pinpoint exactly geographically where our families are from. So 100%. that would be fun. So tell me about partner track because I want to get a sense of what it's like playing 
a young Korean-American woman who's kind of going up through that track, partner track? Well, one, it's tough. I have no regrets of not becoming a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it is way more fun pretending to be a lawyer. I'm constantly Googling words, and I'm like, what does this mean? What does this All mean? All the Latin. Yeah. And I'm like, am I saying it right? Do I say it like this or like this? See, she's totally Asian. She's doing her homework. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like calling my lawyer friends, and I'm like, does this make sense? Can you explain this to me? What does this mean? And they're like, am I billing you for this? Oh, my God. That, okay, you're really talking to lawyers. Right? And I'm like, um... Okay, can you make it in like all in one hour? <laughs> well, Ingrid has a high billing rate. She so. does. Well, she's a New York City law firm yeah. attorney, so of course I like she does. That. I, I probably have a good idea of what her law firm rate is. I love it. I love it. Um, it's incredible just to see a story being told from the perspective of a Korean American woman trying to break that glass ceiling in a very patriarchal world, in a system that almost seems like it's just not cut out for her. Mm. But she's doing the work. She's definitely capable, definitely knowledgeable, and probably one of the best. But I'm sure you have that experience of things just being a bit unfair. I think glass ceilings prevail like in so many different industries. And I think oh. that, do you ever draw on some of your experiences in Hollywood and in acting where you feel like perhaps Again, this sort of glass ceiling is there and you're working within a patriarchal dynamic and, you know, maybe some of your peers who are men um, are getting paid more, getting <laughs> bigger parts, getting access to the, you know, bigger movies. Has that been a struggle that you were able to carry into your role as Ingrid? Oh, totally. I feel like even though I'm not an M&A lawyer. You could be, though. <laughs> you're so smart. I feel like I felt what Ingrid's felt. I felt those feelings of just ugh, like there's not yeah. like words to describe how frustrating it is sometimes and definitely in our industry I feel like we experience it all the time even like the microaggressions and like the racism and the sexism and just the opportunities that are lacking mm. you know it's so often that a story follows a man's journey or the man wins and the woman is supporting or the woman just exists to be an accessory or so often in media Asian women have been very much oppressed and Asian men have just been non-existent in many settings and so I feel like with partner track in this world it's a really exciting time in a place where we get to start that journey and of course it's not every asian american woman's journey but it's so similar to mine mm. and i definitely relate to what she goes through and i love the growth well i think one of the most brilliant things about the show is how well it just zeroes in on Ingrid as a person. And I think what it does is it highlights how advocacy, representation, and being a strong woman isn't a cookie cutter thing. Oh, you right. can be who you are while still being a strong person. So you don't have to be like, you know, one of the things that I always used to get, uh, you know, from my male colleagues, you know, and partners, they'd be like, you're not tough enough, you know, and like literally like one guy oh. was like, practice with me, growl like a bear, Urgh. like Stop. literally, yeah, in no, the office. yeah, in the office, it was like, he just wanted to see you grow. <laughs> exactly. And I was real. like, is this what it means to be a tough litigator? Is this what it means to be a good trial lawyer? And one of the things that I love about Ingrid's character is that she's unapologetically her. She's like, this is who I am. This is who I am, but I'm still competent. I'm still amazing. I'm still tough. Did you find that it was challenging in your own career? Did people try to make you be something that you weren't, where you had to be like, no, this is who I am. I'm Arden Cho, so fuck that. I'm just going to be me. I think I've always struggled with trying to make everyone happy mm. and also being me. And I think for the early part of my career, I was a lot of times the version of Arden that I thought everyone wanted me to be. And I think only in the last probably five to seven years have I really started breaking down the layers and just being more honest and just being more myself. These are the things I like and this is what I like and I'm just going to wear and say what I think is okay even if it might be making waves or rocking the boat. And I feel like that has been so just changing in my life. And I feel like for Ingrid, 
I love that she is strong, hardworking, and she goes for it, but she still has a lot to grow too because mm -hmm. she's obsessed with doing the right thing and making everyone happy at her expense or maybe the expense of her friends or other people in her life. And how many people do we know like that? Mm. Probably so many. Yeah. And I feel like culturally it affects us more because I feel like Asian women, you know, unfortunately in the past have always been expected to just do it and not complain. Do a lot of the work, even if you don't get the credit, just be submissive, work hard, be resilient and really in the end not get the glory <laughs> yeah but she's so good at checking that like she'll she go is. to her male colleagues and be like no 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 you can't do that to me she'll wait until the partner <laughs> leaves right right <laughs> to have that's that conversation yeah she's not gonna let it slide and that's what i love because we keep it real but we see it we see the little bits and i feel like as an audience it's really fun because you can see that women can be fierce and strong but still be feminine. Mm. And that's something that like I'm learning in my later years is that for a lot of my younger years, I was so scared to show my feminine side because yeah. I felt like I had to be so tough and strong. You know, I have friends that are always like, I never see you in anything other than like a big oversized hoodie and sneakers. And it was just because for so long, I just didn't want people to like look at me and like sexualize me. Mm -hmm. You know, for so much of my life, you, know, you just hear these stories of like, oh, well, if you were wearing that and it was revealing, then what do you expect? And it was like these lies that you believe that you can't be feminine. You can't be beautiful and sexy and taken seriously. But I feel like with Ingrid, she's like, oh no, you can. Yeah, you I can look absolutely. amazing and also close some killer deals. And look amazing while closing said killer deals. <laughs> yes. So can you maybe describe for me in your memory, like was there a specific scene <clears throat> or a series of scene or a particular storyline that you found to be like, yes, this is, this is like what I always envisioned being a lawyer would be like. Ooh. Because there are a lot of really there good scenes. So There's many so good many. Scenes. And I love how the names of each episode is like a legal clause or like a concept or so jurisprudence. Funny. I love that you can catch that. Oh no, For I was me, like, I was oh, like, an MAT oh, clause. Oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like still like, I think I know what that is. Oh, and I love how she listens to that podcast oh while she's God. going to sleep. That's, so cute. that's so Korean. That's why we're so different though. Yeah. I am not listening to MA podcasts going to sleep at night. I am not getting excited about spelunking and doing red lines and going <laughs> digging through files. Like, yeah, no. I'm gonna hire some kids to do that for me. But I love that the show does that, that it right. like puts you into the room with the boxes. Because so many times I feel like these law shows, it's like, oh, we're in court, objection, your honor. And it's like, that's like 1% of what we actually do. Well, and it's so funny, because people kept asking me, they're like, well, what was like filming in court? How was court? And I was like, well, we're <laughs> M&A lawyers. We're not in court. Yeah. We're signing some really cool deals in really nice offices conference rooms, yeah. Yeah, lots of banker's boxes. <laughs> and I was like, it's kind of sexy. Sexier than the courtroom. In many ways it is, and you don't have to deal <clears throat> with sort of the emotional confrontation, but you still have to deal with toxic coworkers. Yeah, I, I will say probably some of the scenes that stick out for me are just those moments where Ingrid feels really not a part of the group. Mm. She's just not one of the boys, or just the way that the men bond and over the sports yeah. and hunting even and the yeah. drinking oh my oh gosh my there's this point when she she sort of has great news and all the men are like great let's let's have a drink what do you want a wine and she's like no what are you having they're like lagavulin she's like i'll take one of those yeah and i like that moment because i like whiskey and scotch too but men always assume we're gonna drink wine or a cocktail or like a little sparkling something right something. Yeah. or like exactly it's sort of like she's not afraid to be like no I'm one of you guys. And she is. Well, she's better than them. Right. She like saves the deal single-handedly. <laughs> yeah. Numerous times. Yeah. Like more times than we can. She's count. like the hero that like swoops in. And yeah. the, the worst thing is that they always undercut her. Every right. single one of them. I think the toughest scene for me was on the jet when she finds out that it's a killer acquisition. Mm -hmm. That moment on the jet is is so tough because that's when I was like, oof. Good thing I never became a lawyer because I don't think I could do that. I think I would just be like, yeah, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Or I'm not making that call or I can't do this. But then 
she's gonna lose her job. She's not gonna make partner. She's gonna disappoint her family. Like, ah, all the pressure. And so I feel like all of that, it just feels like so much. Mm. And I really feel for Ingrid. Like she makes a lot of mistakes, but I feel like it's, it's reasonable and fair. Oh, she's an eminently relatable character. Right. Like, like, and you don't have to be like a Korean American lawyer to relate to right. her. Right. Like, oh my God, I'm sure you relate. And <laughs> oh, I, I was relate like, to the this family is her. Stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so that's what I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about. I mean, especially the scenes that the parents always like almost oh make me cry because I'm too. like, it's All literally my mom and my dad, especially the mom because her English is really, really good. And my mother, she speaks almost like not. You can't tell that she's an immigrant, but then of course her Korean like comes out, and you're like, oh. Oh, wow. Okay. What is it like being able to play a part where you can be so unapologetically Korean? There's like pindeta, Korean being spoken at the table and chapche being eaten. (laughs) You have quite an appetite. (laughs) This is just the best chapche I've ever tasted. I love it. That was the best part, honestly. We had so much fun. We actually became like a family. I feel like all of us are friends and we go drinking and eating and we're literally hanging out in K-Town. I love it. Mm. But I feel like it just felt so special because who would have imagined that we would have a Korean family portrayed like this on American TV? Eating Korean dishes, you know, having my mom be like, oh, my mom, of course, like always, or like just, She's saying stuff that my mom would say. And we're speaking the way that I speak to my mom. We speak in Konglish. So wait, do you, because I was was like, does she speak Chunnemar to your parents? So I do a mix. Mm -hmm. My parents speak English and we've been in America since, they've been in America since the 80s. And they're not so conservative. Like if I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. like if I was like, Oh, mom, what's it? She'd be like, "Are you okay? <laughs> Are you sick? Are you mad?" Yeah, yeah. She'd, no, no. She'd genuinely be confused. Yeah. So I mean, every once in a while, I'm like, I will say something proper, but generally, we talk like we're friends. So that scene where my mom is like, "Ingrida, like, mana," you know, like, those are such special scenes because I feel like in the last like ten years, as I've become an adult, like my mom and I have had these really great heart to hearts. And we do talk like that in a mix of Konglish, very seamlessly going back and forth. And there's just so many great words that are not translatable in English. Hmm. Was it challenging playing a woman who I think it's pretty evident from the show that she is very concerned with her parents' approval? and making sure that she's living up to their expectations. I mean, this is probably something that most immigrant children can relate to. I'm assuming that's something that you, you know, maybe grappled with when you were growing up and maybe even still. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm like laughing. Do we ever get away from our parents of Like, "Hmm, Do we know any Asian Americans that are not? I don't. (laughs) I was one of those kids that was so much like Ingrid. I mean, especially in high school, I think all my teachers still have like my work as like the example. I was the kid that like didn't sleep for three days on a school project. Group project? Oh, I would do the whole thing. I wouldn't let anyone touch it because it had to be perfect. Like I had to make sure the poster and the book and the display, everything was perfect. I was just, it was not healthy. But oddly enough, my mom would always be like, hey, Arden, a B student is a happy student. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so she was interesting mm-hmm. because she was different because I think she worried about how obsessed I was with approval. Mm-hmm. And then with my dad, I always felt like I had to be the best for him to just like notice me because he was so busy. And so I was one of those kids that did a little bit of everything. I tried to learn, honestly, everything. Played piano, cello, tap, ballet, karate, taekwondo, like baseball, softball, bowling, like you name it. I think I did it. Mm-hmm. And I was obsessed with just being the best and making sure that they thought I was the best and making them proud because what now I have realized and what I know as an adult is that their way of showing love and their way of telling me they were proud of me was just different than what I was seeing with my friends and their parents. You know, like American parents are like, oh, honey, how is school? Mm -hmm. I'm so proud of you. Good job on your test. My parents are like, Oh, are you hungry? <laughs> eat some food. <laughs> yeah, here, eat food. Eat more food. It was funny because as I got older, 
we had a conversation once about it and my mom was like well we never asked you how you did on your tests or if you had homework because you always got A's and you always did your homework why would we ask something that we know the answer and I was like oh I thought you just didn't care oh, wow. you know and so you realize like as an adult you're like oh we just sort of like missed each other on the communication level, but now it's great. Now, of course, they're like, we're so proud of you. You know we're proud of you, right? And I'm like, thank you, mom. Yes, thank you, dad. My dad's like, oh, my daughter, I'm so proud of my daughter. And I'm like, thanks, dad. <laughs> we're just like eating dinner and he's like, oh, this is my daughter. I'm so proud of her. And I'm like, okay, dad, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. Adorable. But now it's funny because now they've gone like 180 to like the extreme end <laughs> of like, we must tell her she's proud. Or Aww. I mean, we're proud of her because to compensate. Yeah, to compensate <laughs> the like the first 25 years of like oh. never hearing it. Isn't and that being the, the most gratifying but slightly awkward thing? It's so awkward. <laughs> well, it's that funny thing of like, and I've had this conversation with Asian friends where it's like, I don't think our family like hugged or said yeah, I love you. I love you, yeah. Till I was like 28. And I still only get it in text form. Right. <laughs> I don't and, actually and even hear now, it. now it's yeah. still like awkward. It's like, oh, okay. Bye, mom. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, oh, do we, should we do a real hug? Yeah. Side hug. And then in text form, it's really cute. My mom will be like, hi, this is mom. I love you. Yes. So proud of my daughter. <laughs> Same with my dad. He'll be like, hi, this is dad. I'm like, you guys know I know it's you when you text, right? It's so cute. <clears throat> it's a different version of them. Yeah, That's it's very like cute. So I see the efforts, very appreciative and thankful, but I feel like it's just a part of the Asian American experience because of the culture. And my mom made a good point. She's like, her father never said I love you, but she was like, he never needed to. Mm. I always knew he did. I love that. And it was like, oh, oh, interesting. So what is it that makes us think we need to hear to know it? It's just cultural. Yeah. Because I was like, well, all my friends, they do family dinners every night, but my parents were working. We couldn't all sit down and have a nice family Which dinner. Which is also a form of loving right. you. Right. Yeah. They were like, we were making sure you have a roof over your head and food to eat. Mm -hmm. So we were just like your hardworking middle class family. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, I get it. Thank you. I know you love me. Very thankful. You worked so hard and taught me so much. And I'm so grateful. But obviously the angsty teenager Arden was like, my parents don't love me. No matter what I do, I'm not good enough. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> so I could talk to you for like 50 years, but I want to make sure that we wrap this up with a fun question. Love it. So probably one of the most addictive aspects to the show, well, there are two addictive aspects. One is the fact that Arden always prevails, which I love. Or Ingrid, um, Ingrid always Ingrid prevails. Ingrid always oh, prevails. She like literally swoops in and saves the day. And I love that so much. It's very cathartic. But the other thing, of course, are the dueling arm candies, who are very fun to look at. I mean, honestly, <laughs> the whole show is gorgeous. Beautiful. I'm like, I love our casting directors. All the, the but... costumes, <laughs> the dresses, oh my gosh. And, and also the suits. The suit oh, is yeah. quite excellent. I will say a good tailored suit is, whew. It's really very nice. For women also, not just men. Oh no, no, for I sure. I never knew what a big difference good tailoring. Oh, and totally. Until I started wearing suits, because I didn't wear suits. I mean, you obviously have worn a lot of suits. Arden has not, but Ingrid has. And yeah. now I'm like, oh, I get it. I've learned. It makes, well, it's a line from the show. Was it? It was the one by Givenchy. Like, it's not the. It's the. The dress is for the body, and the body is not for the dress. Or something. It's it was something such a great like line. That. Yeah, it was so a great, great line on tailoring. But one of my favorite scenes is when you have the dueling food. So you have one guy who brings this like Michelin star <sighs> sushi omakase, so and then the other one brings an egg sandwich for the deli. So we're, we're not going to do sushi or egg sandwich, but. Let's say you're Ingrid, or even Arden, you've worked 18-hour day. What's the thing that you come home to and you're like, I want to eat this right now. Make it magically <clears throat> appear. Ingrid, for sure, unfortunately, is so obsessed with work. She is, like, only eating leftovers. And, like, she just, like, eats for survival. She's probably eating, drinking juices. We did five-hour energy vials when I was growing up right. in a law firm. <laughs> and lots of coffee. Yes. Ingrid and I are so different that way. Arden wants to come home to like kimchi jjigae, oh. like kogi, just any kind of jjigae. I love jjigae. And then when I'm filming, oddly enough, I always have like biokuk or bukuk, and, and I'll just like, like always have it ready. I'm so Korean. But that is so it's like, lovely. I feel like because 
at set and at work, I'm just eating like of still a breakfast, lunch, and dinner that's all American. And so when I come home, yeah, I'm eating four meals a day. But we're working long hours, so I feel like I no, need it. No, you're burning the calories. Okay. You definitely need it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. please don't judge me. <laughs> no, no one's going to judge you for that. Okay. <laughs> Not on my yeah. channel. So, <laughs> like, at work, I'm eating, like, an American breakfast, an American lunch, American dinner. And then I come home, and I'm like, all right, give me some jjigae or kook. Oh, meal kook is perfect for yeah. you, too. And so I love that, like, Korean food just keeps well. And so a lot of times, like, on a Sunday, I'll make a lot of, like, kook. Or like I'll make some things that are like easy, and then I love that like things like tenjangjigae, kimchi jjigae, you can make in like fifteen minutes. The basics, right? Yes. So I just do just the basics, and that's it. Well, and the basics are like when they're good, they're the best. Right. There's like nothing that can beat a good like yeah. tenjangjigae. And for some reason, I just I just always want something like when I come home. Well, that's, so that's what miyokuk is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like your mother's soup. It's what they make for you, totally. you know? So that's so awesome. I know. Oh but I God. love cooking, and I love, like, my mom was, my mom is such a good cook. Oh, and growing God. up, she'd always cook for us. And so I feel like that's probably where it, like, do you like from. to cook a lot? I love cooking. Oh my gosh. That's yeah, that's so why cool. I was like, when this came up, I was like, wait, I'm so excited. Yay. This is so cool. And mm. also, like, I'm not vegan, but when I'm filming, I do try to eat gluten-free and uh, like a little bit more vegan, mm -hmm. pescatarian, because I actually have a lot of allergies. Oh, do are we okay? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> just, I eat everything always. I have a lot of chef friends. So I'm like, if they're watching this, they know. <laughs> I eat everything because I feel like it's so insulting because my allergies, like, I won't die. I just get congested. Oh. So I'm always really congested, and then I'll just get rashes. But nothing in little Benadryl doesn't fix. Oh, thank God. <laughs> but, like, also, some of these foods, it's just really hard for me to cut because I'm such a foodie. Mm. So only when I'm filming, I do try to eat slightly cleaner. But it's so hard because a lot of Korean food, has... I feel like, is very tough to cook. Vegan, vegan and gluten-free. Oh, gluten-free, yeah. Because yeah. the soy sauce. So I'm actually is really <laughs> excited to do this because I'm like, wait, I need this in my life. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Arden. I like I said, I could talk to you for a very long time, <laughs> uh, but I know you're very busy. Everyone should watch the show. It's so so good. It's amazing, and it's actually like disturbingly accurate when it comes to describing a law firm life. Um, I, I literally felt like I, it was my life on the television wait, screen. I'm sad for you that it was your life because it's really sad but also love that a real lawyer quote unquote absolutely enjoys it and approves oh i loved it because like i said it was very cathartic watching this amazing person who saved the day every single day even if she wasn't necessarily recognized by the people in the show she's recognized by me and you thank you i feel so seen awesome. Yay. hopefully you enjoyed that chat with arden show and if you did let me know in the comments below who do you want to hear from next in the meantime, if you haven't already, head over to Netflix and check out Partner Track. All right, time to do updates and random things. So I wanted to let everyone know here, I am doing a live event at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. It's my alma mater. I'm so excited to be going back there. The event is scheduled for September 23rd, so just about a month away. Make sure to secure your spots now. I'll include a link in the show notes below. What I'm watching, well, in addition to finishing Partner Track, I've watched about a billion TV shows while recuperating from COVID, still testing positive as of the recording of this podcast, folks. I fell hook, line, and sinker for Only Murders in the Building, this really funny comedic show and murder mystery with Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. So before watching this show, I had very little idea of who Selena Gomez was. I thought she was like a child actress, and that was basically it. I come to find out that she's this famous singer, which I had no idea. Regardless, the chemistry between these three people, it's like magical. I don't know of another TV show that has made me laugh out loud as much as this one. I think you will all enjoy it. It's really, really easy to watch. It's only 30 minutes per episode. There are two full seasons. I literally watched all the entire show, both seasons, I think in two days. It's on Hulu. Highly, highly recommend. 
I also watched a haunting movie recommended to me by none other than my four-year-old nephew called My Octopus Teacher, which incidentally picked up the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2020. It is stunningly shot and beautifully told a story about a man's friendship with a wild common octopus. It literally made me cry. (laughs) So make sure to have tissues handy for this one. Also, in case you missed it, I had a wonderful time chatting with my friend Birdo on his podcast, the Birdo Calkins podcast. We talk about content creation, running, dealing with injuries, and friendship. Make sure to check it out. So I'm also going to include in the show notes a link to this really awesome article in Eater about the popularity of Asian vegetarian vegan cookbook authors. Really exciting stuff. Mostly really cool to see what cookbooks are coming down the pipe. I'm really excited about that. So check out the links in the show notes below. You'll not only be able to see what you may have missed in the vegan vegetarian cookbook space, but also what's coming ahead. Speaking of cookbooks, I am ridiculously excited to announce that the Korean vegan cookbook will be published in several different languages this fall. We're talking Dutch, French, German, Polish. I think Polish has already been published. And next year in Korean, finally. I know it took a lot longer to get a Korean publisher interested than one might think, but I think it also speaks to the fact that veganism is now starting to be a real thing in Korea. And that's really, really exciting. Check out the link in the show notes below for a full listing of all the international versions of the Korean vegan cookbook, as well as links to where you can pre-order your copy today. All right, let's get on to everyone's favorite part of the podcast, parting thoughts. Several years ago, on my way into the office one morning, I passed a mother and her daughter walking out of the hotel. My building is adjacent to the Westin Hotel, and they reminded me so much of me and my mom. Although what conversation I could overhear was clearly in Chinese and thus incomprehensible to me, I imagined that like me and my mom, they were discussing the ever-elusive but beckoning future. She, the daughter, looked to be in her early 20s. Taller than her mother by a few inches, she strode confidently ahead towards Dearborn while her mother took dainty steps behind her. Her skin was perfect. Her outfit on point, a small black jacket with brass zippers, leggings, and booties, and her black hair framed a face carrying the kind of ease that befits a 20-something with a world ostensibly at her booted feet. Her mother was styled more comfortably in a navy blue fleece, jeans, and sneakers, her hair short and tucked neatly behind her ears. For whatever reason, seeing them took me back to a scene right out of the green lounge of my alma mater. But at that time, the ability to call that place my alma mater was nothing but a pipe dream. I was there merely to sit for the LSATs, the prerequisite exam to even apply to law schools. I had only just shared my intention to try for law school with my parents a few weeks earlier. Some of the secrecy had been grounded in the fact that I didn't want to hear the I told you so in my mom's voice when she discovered I'd given in to her repeated encouragement to go for a career in law. The other part of it was that I didn't think I could shoulder their disappointment if I failed. The risk of failure was imminent. I had three weeks to prepare for my LSATs, and the two schools I applied to, I refused to leave the city of Chicago, accepted students with only the highest GPAs and LSAT scores. So I saved my money from work to cover the fees associated with the LSATs and even put some aside to take a crash weekend course to help me prepare for the test. But it's hard to keep things like these a secret when you're living with your parents. And soon enough, my mom was like, uh, what's up with all these books and stuff? And so I sat there on my mom's peach leather sofa while she tucked her hands between her knees and listened without interruption to my halting and somewhat disorganized plan for my future in law. Her reaction was pitch perfect. If you don't get into one of these two law schools, don't bother going to law school at all. My mother had 100% perfect attendance at the school of hard knocks. And though she had mastered the fine art of bullshit to a T, she rarely employed it with her firstborn. She always knew how to dig up the kernel of fear that I cocooned with rationalizations and protocols and processes and toss it right back at me so that it landed right at my feet. I retorted that her apparent lack of faith in me was precisely why I didn't want to tell her at all. But Amma came through as she always does. 
She paid for a portion of the weekend course I'd signed up for and offered to drive me to the LSAT testing site all the way in Hyde Park, which is what brought us to the Green Lounge at 7.30 in the morning, hours before the exam was scheduled to start. We wandered into the huge hall, bedecked with comfy velvet sofas and dozens of square tables, shafts of sunlight as thick as tree trunks cutting through the quiet from the floor to ceiling windows throughout. Soothing artwork in greens and lavenders hung with a silent sort of dignity on the walls, complimenting the resident member of the cow parade that lazed right in front of the northern windows. We settled into a couple of chairs, and as she sat down, my mother whispered, wouldn't it be great if you went to law school here? I laughed. I was nervous and jittery from excess coffee and basically terrified that I would make some sort of misstep in this rest of my life blueprint. Um, yeah, that would be great, I whispered back, staring out beyond the cow into the fountain out front. I didn't know then that the cow, the cheery fountain, the melatonic paintings, and even the colorful chairs we were sitting in that all of these things would become as second nature to me as chewing my fingernails while waiting to take the test that would decide my future. That one day, I would be walking towards my downtown office, a partner at a large law firm, watching a mother and daughter disappear around the corner of Dearborn and Kinsey. That years later, I would be sitting at my kitchen table, thinking back on that mother and daughter and the bend in the road they couldn't yet see, as they stepped into the heart of a city, engorged with the sun. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you haven't already, go ahead and make it official and subscribe to the podcast and go ahead and leave a comment and rating below. If you found this episode to be particularly inspiring, it would mean so much to me if you shared this episode or any episode you really liked with your friends, your family, your colleagues, even on social media. In the meantime, till next week, have a lovely day. Music.